Hey, everybody. Happy New Year 2023 from all of us here at First Bite. Thank you so much for joining us as we venture into year five of this journey. Uh, so huge thank you for everybody that's been a part of us. And also a thank you to SLP Life 7842 for her ever so kind words. SLP Life 7842. She shared that she found the podcast fun and informative. A lot of podcasts are fun or informative, but it's hard to find ones that are both. First Bite does just that. It tackles current issues in the field and teaches in a way that's effective but enjoyable. I love that it gives you tangible ideas that you can implement immediately and doesn't just reiterate information that hasn't been tried out. Professionals who are actually practicing give you the best and most up-to-date tidbits and you feel like you're part of the conversation. SLP Life 7842, thank you. You hit it on the head. That's what we do here at First Bite. We focus on expediting research to practice, but also circling back practice to research because it is one big, beautiful circle that puts the patient and the caregivers at the core of everything that it is that we do. So thank you for your kind words. And for everybody that's listening, thank you for joining First Bite for 2023. I'm excited and humbled to see where we will be going this year. Enjoy. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Culver Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join you. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, everybody. 
We are kicking off 2023 with absolute joy and passion and with two women that fill my cup more than I could totally quantify. So our first episode of 2023 is set here to inspire you to embrace the neurodiversity affirming movement especially as it pertains to the world of AAC for the littlest ones that we are called to serve. And I mean, we actually honestly behind the scenes recorded this episode once before, and then the universe blinked and ate the recording. But then it turns out that it ate the recording perfectly timed because we needed to have a tornado warning, thankfully no tornado, and then extra coffee, and then for our guests to meet so that our village of like-minded, neurodiversity-affirming, and trauma-informed clinicians could grow and expand. So today, I have the lovely Erin Forward with me for all things mischief and mayhem. And I get to introduce Dr. Allison Bean, who's an associate professor with The Ohio State University. And she was my partner in crime and sitting next to me at the ASHA Topic Chair Committee meeting last fall. And we sat next to each other and then all of the conversations and all the joy and laughter. And then there was lovely pints at some lobster brewery beer place down (laughs) the corner. So you might be an SLP win. And she after not knowing me other than just sitting next to me, she agreed to come on and share her passion for neurodiversity affirming care via AAC, which is something that we need to put more focus on. So we are kicking off 2023 with that. So yay. So Dr. Bean, thank you so much for coming on. (laughs) It's so funny to hear you call me doctor. You should definitely just call me Allison. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Allison, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Michelle, I am delighted to be here and we were already talking ahead of time and we both agreed that was good that the universe blinked. So I could also meet Aaron and we could have this conversation again because we had so much fun last time. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) Yes. And Zencaster, thank you for contributing to the blip. (laughs) (laughs) But okay. So we kind of got to side talking before we even hit recording about how boys, nephews, and sons all need to remember to wear deodorant and brush their teeth and do all of the things. But there's been all of this laughter around our profession and how we can put joy into it. And I love that because we have to love what we do. And I like to start everybody with, tell me from the beginning, what made you want to be an SLP? What made you want to do the thing that it is that you do? So take us from the top. So I had a very, not very direct route to becoming an SLP. And so a lot of our undergraduates, it's really amazing. I had never heard of speech language pathology. Erin, I don't know if you came in knowing what you wanted to do. Most of our undergrads do actually come in knowing they want to be a speech language pathologist. And I went to school on a swimming scholarship and I knew I wanted to swim. And, you know, I was not a great student, wasn't going to my 8 a.m. classes, you know, just really wasn't that into school, but decided it was better to be in school than it was to be working. And so that's where I was for the first couple of years when I was doing my GE courses. And I also felt really lost in terms of what I wanted to do. And I have an older sister who wanted to be a veterinarian from the time she was in second grade. And she is. My cousin, who's older, wanted to be a pediatrician from the time she was in kindergarten. She is. And then I was like, oh my God, how am I surrounded by people who know exactly what they want to do? 
So I first thought maybe I would do psychology because I started liking my psychology classes. And my mom then, I told my mom and my mom said, well, don't do that because if you're going to you know, go on to a career in psychology, you have to get your doctorate. And we all know you don't want to go to school for that. And I was like, you are right. There is no way I would go back to school for that. Ironically enough, I did. But um, <laughs> so, so then my mom's a special education teacher and she said, why don't you take a speech class and see what you think about it? And I took my first speech class and absolutely fell in love with it. It was the first time I actually liked going to class. I was excited to read the books. Like it was really exciting to actually hit something that I liked. So I decided to apply to grad school right out of undergrad and ended up going to New York Medical College in Westchester, New York. And it was great. I was, I think, their second or third class. And so it was a really small class. I had an absolutely incredible graduate school experience there. And then when I was at graduate school, we had maybe, Michelle, you and I talked about this last time, we had maybe a lecture on autism, maybe, like this was so long ago. And so I graduated and I started working and then 90% of my caseload was autistic children. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I did birth to three and then I did a preschool for kids with autism and just had the best time ever. I loved my families I worked with. I loved the kids I was working with. And it was just a really good fit population-wise for me. And when I was working, I found that some of my kids just absolutely took off in therapy. Like they just, they just were doing amazing. And then my same, you know, another set of kids who I was doing the same exact stuff with and really you know, just really were not taking off in the same way. And so I wanted to try, I went back to get my PhD to figure out how children with autism learn. So that way we can better support them to have better outcomes. And it turns out that's way too big of a research question. So so I was like, I'll just figure this out. And it turns out, well, that's too big. So I ended up looking at just kind of language development in autism and taking very baby steps towards that. And then when I started at Ohio State, I started collaborating with two clinicians, Sam Lyle and Lindsay Patton Cargill, who are both at Bridgeway Academy, which is a school that serves autistic children who are primarily AAC users. And so I ended up really focusing in on non-speaking autistic children who use AAC. And it's been so exciting to work with practicing clinicians who are asking these really interesting questions and to really come together in that way. So I took kind of like this really roundabout way to get there and absolutely love what I do. And I was just telling one of my former students, like, I feel like I just hit the lottery with this job. I love what I do. Yeah. So it takes a while to get there, but you get there eventually. <laughs> Dog is joyously celebrating the journey in the background as <laughs> she's rooting around. I was like, I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, yes, yes, this is amazing. Okay, wait, Erin was a psych major too. Mm -hmm. So how did you find speech then? Well, I got very lucky because Pitt has like a phenomenal rehab program. So like I just had friends that were like, oh, maybe you should do speech. And I was like, because I thought about nursing, but I hate blood. So I was like, I don't. (laughs) And I actually, when I went to school, I wanted to do medical anthropology and do study like medicine in other countries because I like love to travel. Yeah. But then I took some anthropology classes and I was like, this is like, that's going to be hard to hone in mm-hmm. on. And so then I went to my advisor in the speech program and she was like, you should 
do work study at the Children's Institute in Pittsburgh, which is a school for kids with multiple disabilities and autistic children. And I vividly remember sitting because I'd help out at lunch and we'd sit with, I was with the autistic classroom and I had one kid I would sit with and he had his device and he would ask for garlic powder every lunch because he wanted to have garlic powder on his food and he wanted to make sure he saw it because once it went away, like he didn't believe it was there anymore. Mm-hmm. And almost every, like I'd say probably 80% of the children there had devices. And so I went to school for speech for AAC. Like that's what I loved. And I met Michelle and then I realized I also loved feeding, which I, if you had told me I would have done feeding, I would have been like, that's gross. <laughs> but they are so well combined. And then when I started working where I am now, I was exposed to so many more autistic children because I was like, I want the medically complex kids only. Like I just want the medically complex kids. And I started working with autistic children, collaborating with the amazing OTs that I work with. And I was like, I love this. Like, I love this. And Michelle always taught like play-based child-led therapy has just always been within me. I don't like lesson plans. I'm not great at them anyways. I'm neurodivergent in my own way. So then when I started taking floor time courses, I was like, this is just... I found it. Yeah. Yeah. That's just it. Like that's all of us are coming in with our own unique path and like our own unique set of eyes when we like go to treat that we're bringing those exposures and experiences. And I find that fascinating because that can, those are positive intrinsic motivators in our service delivery. And if we're not careful, they could be, you know, intrinsic biases that we do have to root out and address, but like, I'm going to choose the happy side of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to say too, Aaron, I liked working with adults and kids and, and it was really interesting that I ended up going the kid route because I had an opportunity to be a LEND trainee. So the leader leadership education or developmental disabilities Mm -hmm. during my CFY. And I was just like, Oh, well, this is an incredible opportunity. But when I was in grad school, when I did my pediatric placement, midway through the placement, I was failing and it was because I'd forgotten how to play. And my supervisor had to sit down and have a conversation with me about it. And then when I rediscovered, and so I'm glad that you had remembered how to play because like I rediscovered how to do it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And it's amazing for the kids. It's amazing as adults to be playing all the time. And, you know, there's research that shows if you're having fun, you learn better. And so like, that's great that you were able to tap into that right away. Cause I had to figure out how to do it again, which was fun, you know? Well, Michelle might tell you I didn't right away, but, <laughs> but I think for me, I didn't. <laughs> Wait, okay. I distinctly vividly remembered the case, the little one that we were working with. He's autistic and I was seeing him and his little sister who was a NICU grad. So we were doing AAC language with the two-year-old and pacer feeding with the little one that had like an NG tube and oxygen all in the same home. And he had a meltdown and threw down because he was frustrated. So I laid on the ground right next to him and modeled, I am mad. And then Aaron got in, jumped down on the ground on the other side, and he locked eyes with her and was like, mad. There's and like, Aaron look looked over at me and like, she was crying. I was crying. And mom was like, I have so many emotions because I cannot get on the ground right now because she just had an emergency C-section and stuff like it was... But like, it was so awesome to see in that moment, like it just, and I mean, mad is not necessarily play, but like 
it, it evolved is. and it, it went from there. Yeah. But you know what though? It's tapping into kind of conveying how you're feeling. And I feel like even like, you know, neurotypical people, like we don't, no. And I will say I identify more as neurotypical. We all have some neurodivergence, but like I often have trouble expressing my emotions and actually figuring out what they are. Cause sometimes I'll be like, am I feeling mad? And then like, I have to like, like dig a little deeper and I'm like, oh no, it's actually like this other emotion that I'm feeling. So like being able to think about your emotions and feel them and express how you feel in that moment is huge for everything in life, like play, you know, learning any like conversations, you know, it is such a critical thing. And I think it's something that a lot of us struggle with, you know, and to have that moment and to have your emotion validated in that way. That's the other thing too, is to like validate how you feel in that moment and say, and not be like, Oh, no, you're not allowed to be mad right now is huge. That's so freeing to say, you're like, you're allowed to have this emotion. I see you, I validate you. We'll move past it. But it's really, really fantastic. I had two thoughts on the power of play. And it was the books that Aaron's recommended previously. And I know, Allison, when we recorded this, the first iteration, I mentioned them. So one is play, how it shapes the brain, opens the imagination, and I forgot the last word, and invigorates the soul by Dr. Stuart Brown. And then the other one that Aaron always raves about is the interpersonal neurobiology of play, brain building interventions for emotional well-being by Teresa Kessley. And I've purchased the first playbook a couple times and I keep giving it away to caregivers. So it's back on the Amazon wish list. Aaron, if it goes missing next time I visit your house, yo. <laughs> okay. All right. I have our questions that theoretically we're supposed to adhere to. Michelle just got to meet my grandmother. I'm at my grandmother's new assisted living home. She just moved in two weeks ago. So if you guys hear some noises, that's the background. And then that's some drilling that they're doing next door. But I was going to ask both of you. So, you know, with play being, I mean, I feel like we're in a group call of people who are like, everyone needs to play. So how do you guys help get students there who are struggling with play or like, you know, parents or, you know, even, you know, how do you help support them up to get there? Because that really is such a critical piece of learning at every single stage. And I'm curious to know. And make them dance. Cassidy, if you're listening, and I know that you are, she needed to learn how to dance. So I turned on ridiculous, cheesy music like Hey Macarena and like the other classic, like, you know, keeping it alive song from like, but dance, baby, like that. Everybody's going to start laughing because nobody has internal rhythm, or at least I don't. It does not come through my family, but yes. Okay. Aaron, sorry. (laughs) Well, no, I love that because it gets their blood flowing. So, like, that's helpful. But I think, like, You also have to figure out what their play is. So like, you know, some dads are much more like rough roll tumble. I'm going to throw my kid around, but some people want to direct things. Some people want to like, so I think especially with students though, like giving them permission because I feel like they're just so, I was so anxious as a student. So like I will even have sessions where I'm like, don't think about their goals right now. Like just think about like playing with them and building your relationship and then we'll build those on top of everything. And I'm a very like try to make people feel as comfortable as possible type of person and like make them laugh. Like my goal is to make a parent laugh at least once in the session, which can be really hard sometimes. But like I think like getting them in as soon as possible because I think the more you do it and someone watches you, the scarier it seems. Like Michelle had me like feeding kids day one because it's like if you wait too long, it's going to feel like something I can't do. Yes. 
Oh man, you gave me murder eyes too when I first did it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I didn't even think about that though, but it's true because the longer you do watch someone do it, the more unobtainable it seems to you because you're like, oh, wow, I've watched you do this so well for so long. And then I feel like my biggest, when I was in grad school, what was hard was like, I just felt so self-conscious playing. And so I feel like the dancing is really nice and everything and like throwing people in there because then you just kind of lose your inhibition. And Aaron, I'm the same way. If I've had, I feel like I've had a good lecture or a good talk if I get one thing of laughter from the audience. And I'm like, okay, well, it did okay. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, we've had to edit some of our jokes out of here, or at least make them more G-rated. But that's how people learn. Yeah. You learn through play. Aaron's got the great quotes for these things. But like, this is, yeah. Also, God help, I can't sit still. And it's like a super dry day long lecture. And you're in the back of the room like I'm no. Yeah. Yeah. It's always kind of fun. You can pick out who that OTs in the room are or who are friends with OTs because they bring their own knitting or they bring their own like fidget toys. (laughs) I'm like, oh, self-regulation. Okay. All right. So when we first started talking about this and talking about embracing the neurodiversity piece, one of the pieces that you and I talked about was the transition and even the terminology and the language. And for us that are a little older in the room, our autism class was probably not a class. It was probably embedded in child language development along with conditions like Down syndrome or cerebral palsy. And you got a night, right? But now we have heard from autistic voices and autistic individuals where instead of using the terminology nonverbal to transition to non-speaking and to use autistic first, and that has been a huge shift for me personally as a clinician, like I'm rubbing my chest. It makes me nervous that I'm going to use the wrong terminology. So can you talk to us about those terms and how to coach caregivers and clinicians through? Yeah. So Michelle, it's so funny that you say that because I feel like I'm also becoming very new in this terminology. And you guys heard me do it where I say we sometimes, and then instead of saying I, and we... As speech-language pathologists, we know that language is incredibly powerful, right? So really trying to make sure – I really try and focus on making sure I'm using the right language, and I mess up all the time. Like, it is still – I am on a journey. We're starting to do these really great trainings in diversity, equity, and inclusion because this was a need for the faculty, staff, and students at Ohio State. And it has been incredibly enlightening in terms of just kind of like really thinking about the words you're using – really thinking about how you're talking about things and then recognizing that everyone's on a journey. So I will just say I will mess up again during this podcast and continue to try and catch myself. But with the neurodiversity movement, I had started hearing about it probably like 10 or 15 years ago. And it was really hard for me to wrap my head around. And part of the reason it was so hard for me to wrap my head around was the training that I got in graduate school was really saying, okay, you know, our job is to fix the communication impairments. And I'm going to use these words and I'm going to kind of say how I've shifted to fix these communication impairments and to fix these people. And that was kind of what was drilled into us. And one of the really interesting conversations that we got into at our table, we had the best table at the ASHA convention planning (laughs) committee was the fact that like, should we even be a field of speech language pathology? Because we are pathologizing people 
where's differences, right? And so since that time now, I really credit a lot of this to my graduate student, Morgan, but Morgan is a huge proponent of and a huge advocate for neurodiversity. And she's educated me in these really important ways about, I'm going to get to your answer eventually, Michelle. I swear, Erin and Michelle, I will get there. (laughs) But you know, a lot of, there's this really interesting research coming out that Morgan was telling me about and that she's starting to do research studies on. Um, And it's this idea of double empathy. And what this idea is and what this theoretical model has shown is that when we look at autistic people, and neurotypical people, what we see is there's a communication mismatch, right? So we see that there are difficulties in communication exchanges when you have a neurotypical person paired with an autistic person. When you have a neurotypical and a neurotypical person, they're effective at communicating with each other. And when you have an autistic person and an autistic person, they are effective at communicating with each other. So it's really that mismatch in neurotype is where we see that breakdown in communication. And the fact that we see that breakdown in communication based on neurotype really highlights you know, this finding that it's not an impairment, it's a difference. And I feel like, like really thinking about it that way and saying, if you match based on neurotype, we don't see those communication breakdowns. And so we really need to think about this as a difference. And so when you start coming at it from that perspective, it really changes. There's nothing to fix, right? It's just a difference in how individuals are communicating across neurotypes. And if we think about it that way, how do we then kind of shift so that way, based on your neurotype, you're code switching to effectively communicate across neurotypes, right? And really thinking about intervention that way. And that's why I think it becomes, you know, so I think it's critical for us to begin to describe this as a difference rather than an impairment, because it research is showing it is a difference, not an impairment. <laughs> and then really, really being aware of what the autistic community is saying. So Michelle and I had this conversation about how when I was publishing, first, I started with nonverbal. And when you look at research studies, that's what a lot of individuals who are doing research use is this idea of nonverbal. But then when you look at how we're defining nonverbal, There's no consistency across research studies. And so this is the same problem that researchers ran into with this idea or with the terminology functional communication. And once again, functional communication is like, well, who knows? We're all working from different definitions. And so that was the same thing that's happening in the research with nonverbal, you know, and when you look at research studies, Lynn Cagle did this wonderful scoping or systematic review in 2020, looking to see how are researchers defining nonverbal when they talk about doing research with autistic nonverbal individuals? And what they find is there's no consistency in definition. So you might have some people being referred to as nonverbal who have like up to 10 to 50 words in the same group as some kids who have no words, or it might be the child is described as not having functional communication, which we know who knows what definition you're coming from with that. And so they've really kind of shifted. And what I've started shifting to in my research is minimally verbal. And what's recently come out is a shift over to non-speaking. And the reason there's been that shift over to non-speaking and where we're really seeing that shift happen, and researchers are always like behind on everything, that's just kind of the way we roll, is, you know, this has been autistic people advocating and saying, 
when you say nonverbal, that language, people get this idea in their head that this person doesn't understand what you're talking about. And it kind of like when you say nonverbal, you might get this idea that really doesn't capture that individual. And so there's been a push to shift over to non-speaking because non-speaking really just says, I'm going to communicate in a different modality, right? You know, and it doesn't give that impression that this is an individual who may not understand language. This is an individual who, you know, might be doing other things. Instead, it just says this person is communicating in a different modality. So I actually think it will be good if, you know, as a group speech language pathologists really listen to what non-speaking people are saying and start to make that shift, right? That shift matters for a reason. And we don't want people to hear a term and kind of come up with this different set of ideas than what's actually happening. And that's why, you know, when Michelle and I were talking about it, I think non-speaking is a great term, right? Because it does describe that person is just communicating in that different modality. So in terms of talking and coaching parents, in terms of talking about it with other speech language pathologists, with people from other professions, I think there's always that educational piece to it. And just saying, oh, if you use a word like nonverbal, people might have this idea in their head. But if you use a word like non-speaking, this is what people may think instead. And really just kind of educating them about words in general, preconceived notions that people may have when they hear certain words, and having a conversation about it. Because I think with all of this, it's really you know, we're all coming from different perspectives, from different lived experiences and everything else. So when I hear nonverbal, to me, I'm just like, oh, this person isn't communicating using spoken language. That's really different than when my sister who's a vet hears nonverbal, she's going to have a very different set of ideas, just based on our backgrounds. So having that open conversation, and having that dialogue, and honestly, the language we're using now will probably be really different than the language that we use in another 10 years because this is an ongoing conversation. And so I think being flexible enough to say, okay, this is what a community is telling us and being open to that rather than being really rigid and saying, this is how we've always done it. And then the last thing I'll say (laughs) is I'll get in my soapbox about operational definitions really, really matter And it's really challenging when we're all working from a different set of definitions. And so I also like non-speaking because then it's just like, this is a person who isn't communicating verbally, you know, like, or is communicating in a variety of other ways, but they are not consistently, you know, communicating verbally. So that way we're all coming from that same place because otherwise it's like oranges and apples and pears and like, who else knows what else is in there? That's what we talked about in our last conversation was that we have the new definition of pediatric feeding disorder. We have an acute, we have a chronic, we have the four components, medical, psychosocial, feeding skill, and nutrition. However, there is no finite definition within that to convey mild, moderate, severe, or profound pediatric feeding disorder because that hasn't been quantified yet. And I'm going to put the yet in the universe. But because of that, people are speaking to it differently and there's no clear cut. Or even Michelle thinking in that same way of like non-speaking, what can be terminology that you use to maybe define a child that is to like kind of looking even more of like a descriptive too, like giving more because what I love that what you were saying, Allison, too, is like talking about neurotypical individuals kind of, it's interesting to me that a child gets an 
autistic diagnosis and they get every service they could possibly need. Even more so than some of my patients I see that have like Rett syndrome or another diagnosis is that more so because we are so uncomfortable with shifting our own biases and shifting how we accommodate in the environment that is not set up for them. And again, we live in America where preventative is not really like a thing that we do or like setting up an environment to like universal before we just want to fix it all. So like, but it is about getting to know every individual, like every individual is different. So if instead we looked at how is this individual communicating as a person that may mean they are autistic. How is this person? We talk all the time at my work about communication styles and how this person communicates versus this person. Like how an autistic person communicates is, see, Michelle, we mess up sometimes. Um, All the time. Like, But were we taking a step back, I think, is hard for people. And yes, that may mean I have to say more words to describe someone, but don't they deserve that? They're bigger than just one label. Yes. Yes. Like, you know, yeah. Don't we all want to be bigger than one label? I mean, I think about it for anybody. If, you know, someone just, you know, looked at me and was like, female, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm a lot more than that. You know, I have a lot of things. So I don't think one label should be for anybody, you know, like, because that boxes all of us into our preconceived notions about that specific word, you know? And so I really like that idea of using a lot of language to describe someone. When Michelle and I have been talking about the pediatric issue, that the issue that you guys are running into with pediatric feeding, I haven't done any feeding since I was like in grad school. <laughs> so I feel like this is so <laughs> out part of so far outside of what I do. But you know, and Aaron, I'd be interested to get your take on this. So we I was telling Michelle about how the clinicians I'm working with, we were talking about how hard it is to describe the amount of scaffolding that you're providing to someone who uses AAC. And we, you know, we use hand over hand and then it's like, oh, moderate prompting. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? And so we put a paper out and JSLHR, a viewpoint paper about trying to take some of the language from the FIMS, the functional independent measures. measures. I forget what the S is, but talking about like, you know, when we talk about AAC users, just how independently are they doing it? Which seems like a much better, if I was a clinician getting someone on my caseload, like that matters to me rather than being like, oh, I gave them moderate prompting. It's like, well, my moderate prompting might be different than your moderate prompting, which might be different than Michelle's moderate prompting. So Michelle, you just got to get on that. You and Aaron have to start working (laughs) on that pediatric stuff. (laughs) Well, someone, I mean, you know, you can do it. Because you have physicians that are like, oh, go ahead, Michelle. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, but that's just it. Like, this is how, folks, it's not enough with one breath to raise awareness about a problem or gripe about a problem if you're not willing to put forth actions or ideas for resolutions or solutions. And that's huge. I mean, and bigger picture, because I think we, like, Michelle's the one that has, like, shown me how you can get involved from, like, a bigger perspective at the state and national level and try to make changes. And like, we're the ones that are going to have to do it because we're the ones that are experiencing it. We can't expect like these lawmakers to be like, yeah, let's just think about like, you know, insurance coverage for this or like, like they don't know. So yeah, that's a lot to ask of people, but that's part of like advocacy and what we do. Yes. 
Yes. This is why you joined your state association. This, this is my soapbox. Like, okay, as I hear you, I see the social media posts. What's Asha doing for me? What's Asha doing for me? You are Asha. And Asha does not have a paid registered lobbyist for each individual state. And a lot of the concerns that people bring forth are actually state level advocacy issues. Well, then that's why you join your state association because that money actually goes to pay the lobbyist who works with the VP of governmental affairs and having done that role for way too long. That is, how you drive the change. Like we still don't have access to the proper CPT codes in our early intervention system. Okay. It is 2023. Theoretically, it's November of 2022 when we're recording this. (laughs) If it has changed, I will eat those words. But in this moment, I have access within our state early intervention system to 92609, which is utilization of a speech generating device for treatment. I do not have access to the CPT code for a non-speech generating device to program a device or to eval for a device, but I can treat. What the hey, hey? Oh, (laughs) Oh, I know. I know. We have had, I have testified. We have had meetings. Erin has. Is it better in Ohio, Allison? Because by the time people in Ohio. Well, I'm about to say something so terrible. And actually, I feel like this is, I will totally own this as a problem because I'm not practicing. I don't pay so much attention Mm, to that. No, that's fair. So my friend Amy, who I collaborate with as well, I know our practicing clinicians have been doing a lot with AAC in Ohio. And I cannot tell you where we are. And that is incredibly embarrassing. But once again, I think it highlights, you know, kind of this gap between what I'm doing as a researcher and what I'm thinking about. And, and it's, and what you it's need to do is a, mm-hmm. but it also makes me think of, and I'm just like, this is why I, you know, as you guys were talking about, you know, working and advocating and all this stuff. And I was like, this is why also researchers and clinicians need to come together. Yes. Because when I went back to school, I was like, I really care about doing clinically relevant research. Like I feel very committed to it. And I am able to do what I see as clinically relevant research. I'm not sure if everyone who read my research would agree with it, but it's working with SLPs who are practicing and saying, this is what we're actually, these are the issues we're running into. This is what we need to try and begin to understand. And that would be different than where I would think we you know, need to start because I'm not in the classroom. I'm not working with these kids anymore. And you know, I'm not practicing as an SLP, but there's something critical about knowing what the needs are on that ground level every single thing. So I'm embarrassed to say, Aaron, I can't say, I think we're improving. I know, I know. Don't worry, everyone, I'll figure it out real quick. <laughs> well, and I know everyone who does AAC work, you know, everyone I know has been doing a lot of advocacy. So even if we're doing okay, I know there's a lot. People are putting in work. Yeah. But we also still need to go a pretty far distance, I believe. But yeah. <laughs> but that's just it. So like folks, if you're listening, you may not have the time to commit to being the person to champion for the advocacy, but if you type it out, your concerns in an email or to pick up the phone and phone a friend and say, Hey, do you know this person that I could talk to and share my concern? Like you just have to raise awareness because a lot of times your state association leadership is faculty or they may practice in adults or they may practice in peds and they don't know what they don't know. So don't hold them at fault for something that they're not privy to the information if it hasn't been raised in a seek to understand perspective. Okay. The other thing I'll add to that, Michelle, is, you know, everyone's dealing with a limited amount of time. We all have only so much you can do in a day, right? Which is not a bad thing, but it's also 
when you decide you actually really care about something and you know, there's this great, great book that I love and it's called The Art of Not Giving a... It's so, so, I'm assuming we cannot curse on this podcast. I won't curse on it. But what this book says is it's like, you know, you can't care deeply about everything, but the stuff that you care deeply about, care really deeply about, you know, like go there. So in terms of like advocacy, if there's something where you're like, oh, it's good to let people know about this, let people know about it. If it's something that you care deeply about, go all in. But it's also good to let people know and just continue to educate because there is that gap in knowledge for all of us. I'm glad you love that book too. It's so good. (laughs) Sarah Ditzel gave me that book. She actually worked at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and she's home with her little one now, but embarrassing clinical supervisor moment when she was my student, I had just stopped breastfeeding and we were walking down the baby aisle and I was trying to explain why the Medela Calmo bottle nipple was really cool because it recreated like the milk ducts and the breast tissue on the surface of the bottle. So without thinking, it's really kind of cool. I grabbed her hand and I put her hand on my boob and was like, it feels just like this. Like, do you feel the milk ducts? Like, I know I've stopped breastfeeding, but they're still there. And like, I didn't think I was just caught up in the moment. And then Sarah, bless you. She turned bright red, bright red. And she goes, yes, yes, I can feel the milk ducts. And then I was like, I made you feel my boob while her hand was still on my boob. And she was like, Yes, yes, you did. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. So then I called Juliana, her clinical person at university. And I was like, so this thing happened today. And she goes, Michelle, that's why we love you because you put them all in. And I was like, I'm so sorry. But like, be a clinical supervisor. Don't make your students feel your boobs. (laughs) End of story. Okay. (laughs) But Michelle, I feel like that story gets to something really important too, though, is like, you know, every single person is coming into an interaction with very different like part of my love language is I'm into love languages. And with the love languages for people who don't know, there's these five love languages, you know, acts of service, physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation and gifts. And what's really helpful, and this is in any relationship that you have is to know what your love language is. So how you express your love, and then also knowing how you like to receive love. And so it really is kind of like this different way of talking about it. Ever since I read that, I was like, oh, I'm physical touch, you know, and I do get touchy. And when I moved from the Northeast, I was born and raised in Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New York. People are really touchy there. You know, everyone kisses on the cheek. Like it's a very touchy culture. And then I moved to the Midwest. And you want to know what? That's like not the same. And my, <laughs> my friend Beth, who I'm very close with, like I was in the PhD program with, I was touching her and she's like, you have to stop touching me. Like she was like, I don't <laughs> like it. And I was like, oh my goodness, I am very, very sorry about that. And so I think it's also having that conversation of, oh my goodness, I may have made you uncomfortable and not even realized it. And just saying, oh, like I wasn't thinking this is, you know, my thing and being really open to the fact that, you know, we all do this all the time and just kind of owning it and then being like, oh, I'm sorry, I made you uncomfortable. I also have to like respect how you like to interact. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're neurotypical, neurodivergent, like we all have different interaction styles. We all have different things that we're comfortable with. And it's not the same for any person (laughs) ever. (laughs) But you're accurate because I'm a hugger. I'm a toucher. And Erin humors me every time I give her a big hug. She's like, yes, but you know what? She hugs the boys good. (laughs) My boys, sorry, not boys in general. Let me clarify that. <laughs> but, but 
But you know what's so nice though is like the fact that you know that about Aaron uh-huh. and Aaron's like, I'm doing this because, you know, and if she didn't want to do it, she would tell you to, and that would be okay. Like that's yeah. the best part is to be like, like so. In the nor- like you said, it's the Northeast, but it's not as deep. The South, they just really like, it's like a deep hug oh, and the North is like a lighter touch. Okay. One funny story and then we have to move on. But I distinctly remember when Bear was little, he would hug his daycare teacher and he would straight up motorboat her at two. He would go all in. And she goes, and I mean, she was well endowed by Mother Earth. And she goes, oh, honey, he always does that every single time. And I'm like, well, I'm glad he knows his muchness at two. That's <laughs> like, really funny. Oh my God, I was just like, I'm so sorry. She's like, it's okay. He's happy. I was like, okay. Okay. All right. So this actually yesterday, yesterday I sat at a coffee shop all day and looked at a computer screen and I came across this article that just came out this summer. It is parents' perceptions and experiences with their children's use of augmentative alternative communication, a systematic review and qualitative meta-analysis. It came out July 1st, 2022 by Beringer, Martinez, de Saticio, and I'm going to butcher it, Biloxi, and I'm sorry, I know that I said all of that wrong, but this journal article blew my mind because it went through, I mean, it was like this super amazing meta-analysis and it went through everything and pulled out what individual barriers were, but like it quantified it more to accessing AAC, not specific just for autistic individuals, but it was predominant heavy within the population that they pulled. But it talked about lack of support and support even in the sense of, and this is something that Aaron and I have talked about, like we may set it up in early intervention and that's not prevalent. Not that many speech pathologists engage in high-tech AAC within the framework of early intervention for the birth to three population. But if we set it up, then it transitions to the LEA. But how that even that transition can be a barrier between settings. And it brought me back to 99% Invisible is my favorite podcast to listen to. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. If you folks, if you haven't listened to 99% Invisible with Roman Mars, like his voice, it's very funny, but they talk about the history of design of everything. And they actually had an episode talking about universal access, right? And how, if we looked at universal access for all differing types of disability and ability, then it would, how much better the world would be. And it made me think of these barriers. So how do we engage and coach caregivers through why we need to embrace AAC, especially speech generating, but how do we do this from like a neurodiversity affirming care? And that is four research projects and one very long-winded question. And we only have 15 minutes. (laughs) So this came up with some research I did with Sam and Lindsay and then some of my students. And so what was really interesting is that Bridgeway Academy, where Sam and Lindsay work, like I said before, AAC is what a lot of kids are using. And the teachers are really brought into the idea that AAC is the individual's voice. And the parents are really bought into this idea, right? The parents are very supportive of it. So we did a survey kind of assessing how bought in parents were, you know, did they feel like it was a child's voice? how comfortable they felt with the technology and everything else, kind of looking at buy-in and then operational competency. And then with the parents' permission, we turned on data logging 
for on the children's devices. And what we found was that the parents were super bought into this idea. But when you looked at AAC use in the home, like the kids weren't using it. And we were like, oh. And so we then ended up with a different research question. And we were like, wow, there seems to be this really interesting disconnect between, you know, these parents really are really bought into this. And you'll talk to them and you're like, yeah, you guys are 100% bought into this, but it's not being used at the home. So how do we bridge this gap? And so we did a parent training. And when we went into the homes the first time, and we videotaped the parents interacting with their children across three different contexts, play, book reading, and then like a snack or a meal. And what we found the first time that we went in is parents would be like, oh my goodness, where is the kid's device, right? And and so clearly they're communicating with their child all weekend long, right? You know, clearly the communication is taking place, but it's just not taking place with the device. So then what we did is we did, it was a six or eight week parent training where we just gave them strategies. We did it in a group so parents could talk about kind of what had worked that week, what hadn't worked that week, and really brainstorm together And then when we went back in the houses, like, you know, two months later, it was totally different. Like those parents had the devices out. They were modeling. They were asking questions. And so what I think it is, is I think it's, is it's not, it's not, you know, having time to coach parents on how to do that. What does it look like in the home? You know, and really kind of getting that educational piece in there. And I think a huge part of why we did see so much change as well, and this is just based on, you know, my feeling, I don't have data about it, was I think there was something really effective about having a group of parents together to try and problem solve and be like, oh, well, what about this? And I ran into this problem. What did you do? And it was really cool to see the change in the parents' behavior. And then we, of course, saw that increased device use, which is exactly what we wanted to see. So I think a lot of it is, you know, you have to get that buy-in, first of all, on the technology. You have to get that understanding that it is a child's voice. And then I think it's really, you know, showing the parents these, these really easy, accessible ways of how you can incorporate it. And then I think you want them to get to it. And we talked about this during the parent training. If I don't have my cell phone with me, I kind of freak out a little bit. And I feel like all of us have had this experience, right? You leave your cell phone at home and you're like, oh my goodness. I can't do anything without my cell phone. And I personally need it because I use it for GPS. <laughs> so like <laughs> I can't get around without it. You know, it's, it's like a crutch for me. So with that, you know, and we say, well, this is the same thing for your child, right? This is how they're communicating. If you think about texting during the day, if someone can't get a hold of you, this is how they're getting a hold of everyone. And I think it's kind of, you know, not only kind of saying, yes, yeah, a voice, but like, how do you feel when you don't have that piece of technology that you need, even if you're not using it all the time and trying to get those little pieces in there. And I think it's really hard is behavior change and behavior change is like just hard, especially if anyone's been given any new technology, I struggle with it. I take out books on overdrive, which is the app that my library uses and they're getting ready to switch over to Libby. And I'm freaking out because I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to have to learn this whole new app. And this is like crazy. And this is, literally to electronically check out books. Like it's not going to be that hard. And I'm feeling all this angst about it. And so I think about it and I'm like, this is such a little thing. How does it feel then when you're giving this whole new piece of technology and being like, here you go. And now we're going to give you all this information. So that was my take on it. I would love to hear what you guys both think. 
Okay, so I have a take, but I have a thought. The National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders does a once a month, it's like the second and third Thursdays, they have one caregiver support group for parents with pediatric feeding disorder. And then they have once a month adult dysphagia, like caregivers, partners, spouses, and also the patient with dysphagia. But it's a support group where they can troubleshoot together. So is there something like that, but for AAC users, that's free? Like nationally? Do you know of anything? Because I don't. I don't. Do you, Erin? I feel like- I don't think so. Okay. So then that's idea. We're putting this in the universe, people. But like, how cool would that be? I'm going to write that down, Michelle. I'm writing that down. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So caregiver support group. Okay. So then- Well, because I feel like I have, and I also feel like with caregiver, but also I have a lot of SLPs that don't feel comfortable. I just had a mom I talked to yesterday that was like the SLP, because I see this child for feeding- there was scheduled like a lot of reasons why I don't see them for language right now. And mom was like, the SLP really wants us to work on sign. I don't want to learn sign. I really want to use this device because this will allow this child to say more and communicate more and it's more robust. And oftentimes in the school systems, I feel like is where, and Michelle and I have talked at length about like providing more education in the school systems because a lot of it is they don't, and I totally understand SLPs in the school have way too high caseloads and not enough time to do all the things that they want to do. But how do then we provide better education? Because this is only going to grow of the amount of AAC users that come to school. Like this is only growing and like it's going to be something that like they have a right to use. And to your point too, like I have a lot of kids that may not, and that's where I think their struggle is, is they'll be like, well, they don't really use it at school. They're not really using it as much. But like a lot of them feel so much safer having it there and they may not be using it at school for a multitude of reasons, but they have a right to have it there regardless. And like that building that education of like minimally speaking or like partial, like, you know, part-time AAC user or whatever the, you know, terminology they want to use for that. Like, I think I struggle a lot with the understanding of children that use it not all the time and like how to communicate that with parents and teachers and other people of like the value of, because children use it for so many different reasons. I have kids that learn it just to learn the language and then they speak it afterwards. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 14 thoughts. One, The access point within the public schools and the access point like for SLPs getting exposure to it, one of the things that I have advocated for behind the scenes is that a lot of speech pathologists don't realize that these companies will establish long-term loans for free for the SLP and they just, it's not brought up. So unless you... But I'm going to take that back to our coursework. A lot of our professors that are teaching the AAC classes, they may not actually be using the AAC. And so if they're not actively in it, then they may not be privy to the fact that you can get long-term loans, right? And so that's one of the things Stephen Neese teaches the AAC class here at the University of South Carolina, but he was the AAC lead in the school district. So he could guide on the functional. So big picture, what we've done behind the scenes is network with our lead SLP here in the state of South Carolina with the contract specialist for these AAC companies, because she wasn't an AAC 
provider, her focus is like Arctic phenology. So she's in the process of creating data points for SLPs across the entire state of South Carolina on the hopes that eventually every school-based clinician in the state will have a free long-term loan from a, one of the AAC. Can you imagine how fundamentally shifted South Carolina will be when every SLP in an LEA has access to AAC at all times? It's going to be a year or two before it it gets to that level, but like we have laid the foundation for that, right? That's freaking phenomenal. And with respect to the early intervention, just like you said, how you plug it into like those daily routines, this is why in the framework of early intervention, SLPs, we need to be conducting the family-guided routines-based interview to find out how and where the point-of-system breakdowns for communication and where families actually have ability to plug in and carry over our activities. Because case in point, I have a little girl who is two and a half on my caseload, does not yet have an autism diagnosis, but it is coming. And when we did the family guided routines based interview with the mom and went through the mom's entire day, mom is literally only sleeping two to three hours every single night. She works all night long as a LPN and then is up with her three children. And here we are bringing in high tech AAC, which within the first, she was the dream. I brought in a device and within the very first five minutes, she had conveyed stop, go, want, play like that. I mean, like lit up like a Christmas tree, but how is mom going to be able to carry this over when she's literally running on two and a half hours of sleep every single night? But I mean, there's tools. Had we not done the interview, we would not have known that that was her actual brutal reality. But like now that we know that, we know, oh my God, we really need to get her into like a phenomenal preschool right out the gate. Like now we know how to troubleshoot to set the whole family up for success for the Maslow scale of hierarchical needs. But like, rawr. Okay, that was a lot. No, I actually am going to add on to what you're saying. And I'm so happy that you talked to the mom because we all have different realities. And, you know, everyone wants the best for their kids. They want the best for their partner. They want the best for everybody. But you know what? If I was on two hours of sleep, I'm non-functional. So, like, she's amazing. That is insane because I would be non-functional. And to not know about that stuff, you're then going to make that person feel bad. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, you shouldn't feel bad. Like, you are doing amazing with everything you have going on in general. But to get, I was going to go back to Aaron's point about, you know, one of the things we're trying to do right now is to one of my former students who is, I am boundless in Columbus, they get autistic people who have very significant needs. And a lot of the autistic, like adolescents that they're getting in who are now going to boundless for school are non-speaking and do not have access to a communication system. And we were like, that is not okay to be 13 and to not have access to a communication system. So we're in the process. Oh my God, so cute. I'm (laughs) Uh, Googling the I am boundless. It's a whole organization. Yep. Yep. And so one of the things that we're trying to figure out is why is this happening? Because is it an educational thing for the SLPs? You know, are the SLPs not recommending devices? Is there something going on? Is there something specific about the profiles? of the children who aren't getting access to devices or access to communication systems. Because once we can kind of figure out where that breakdown is, we can then put our resources into the right area. And one of the things that, you know, just kind of doing a quick scan of the data we've gotten so far is a lot of the families, English is not their native language. And so that seems to be consistent across the profile of the children. And we haven't gotten yet to look at what's happening 
within the schools before they transitioned over to Boundless, but to see if they were even being recommended devices. Recent research has also suggested that SLPs, even though we are doing a lot more graduate level training, still don't feel comfortable doing AAC. And I think we need to kind of continue to educate that I'm a language researcher. AAC is language. Like, you know, you're supporting language. The modality is different. That's the only thing. Like, and so, yeah, there's a little programming, but it's a different modality. And it's, you know, let's not try and complicate it. You are teaching language in a different modality. And that's what it is. And it's less complicated than we make it in our heads. And finally, in terms of the kids, Aaron, who are, you know, may use AAC for different things. I was telling Michelle, I went to the talk last year at ASHA. It was like 5 p.m. on a Friday night and the room was packed. And it was three autistic SLPs talking about how to write neurodiversity affirming goals and neurodiversity affirming reports. And one of the things that they had in there was having consistent access to AAC, because even if an individual does use verbal language to communicate, they might be more comfortable in different situations using AAC. And we've seen one of my former students, one of her very good friends is autistic. She can speak very fluently verbally, and she prefers AAC. That is her preferred method of communication. And so let's also do that. Like, if that's your preferred method, great. You know, that's great. Then you can communicate that way. Then we're giving you access to a language system that you're most comfortable with. And if you're more comfortable with it, you're going to communicate and engage more, right? So I think also educating people that just because you can speak doesn't mean that's your preferred modality. And you should have access to all the modalities that you're comfortable with. And you may shift around. (laughs) Yes. But we say the same for the little ones that we work with that have hearing impairments. They may choose spoken language and they may choose ASL or they may choose both. And there's power and joy there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think too, like, and where I'm really excited about like more research, hopefully being done and coming out is with our adult language processors and AAC users, because I like, especially with the intonation and like how to make AAC devices more rhythmic and also acknowledge that like people will be like, their language isn't functional. And you're like, it is functional and it may be a script from a movie, but like it does mean something and it's our job to figure out what that is. But like, I find it, (laughs) I find it so interesting. I'm like, I just like thinking about It's just so interesting to me and the beauty of how they use language and the emotion behind it and the intonation. I'm just always like, and I will sit back and just listen for a long time because I'm like, I need to figure this out and not assume what you're saying. And I need to like, but yeah, but figuring out how to like make AAC more melodic. I just, it's so interesting. I love that you're stepping back and saying, I'm going to try and figure this out because it's a difference. You're just communicating differently. And then I think about all the time. I use so many scripts of my own scripts all day long. Like everyone does, you know, I've got my script in the elevator. I've got, and it's just like, and I think about when I use it and it's when, you know, I might be more tired. I want to decrease my processing load, but I want to connect and interact with this person. And so my purpose is to connect but it's, you know, if I'm scripting to get there, like that's okay. Cause I'm still connecting. So I think it's awesome that you're doing that and just saying, okay, 
our goal is to connect. Like we communicate and we engage to connect. And I also want to connect with you. And right. I think I think that's the most powerful thing is saying, yeah, I hear you. And I want to connect with you too. And you pick up on scripts of people that like you care about and people that you trust. And like my favorite, one of my favorite moments is when like I have a kid that, and it's not that I'm wanting them to imitate me. I'm just modeling. But when they imitate immediately, because I'm like, you trust me. Like now you trust that I understand you because you didn't even hesitate to imitate the language I was giving you because you've connected with me enough to know that like, I know you. Because it takes a lot longer for that to happen. So it's like focusing on that connection and that understanding. Like you have to understand them first before they're going to be like, anything you have to say is within what they're trying to express. And I would say too, like, so not only, so when I'm interacting with someone, I'm trying to understand, but they're also trying to understand me. You know, like (laughs) every person comes into an interaction. We're like, oh, it's so straightforward. I'm a really straightforward communicator. No one is. Like me, (laughs) like no one. And so like you also, I think it's also really good to like reflect on on how hard that kid is working to like figure out what you're trying to do and to connect. And they're working just as hard as you're working with them, which says about how meaningful that connection is. Yeah. Oh, Aaron, I would have you and Michelle as my SLPs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying Aaron's in Ohio now. Y'all, Aaron, you've been daydreaming about a PhD and the research ideas. So happy chatting afterwards because she's got really great research ideas for like connection and like how connection and relationship carries out in language and in feeding. And Well, and you and I just took a lecture from Kim Bartell, who's a phenomenal OT, and she studies autism and put all this research on autism. And she's also trauma-informed and relationship-based and studied NDT. And so like her putting all these things together, I was like, oh my goodness, like I'm blown away. (laughs) It's amazing what people are doing. And I feel like I go to that all the time and I'm like, oh my gosh, like people are making these connections that you would have never thought of. And it's so exciting to see because you're like, this is going to make everything better for everybody. Like this is, this is just going to move everything forward. (laughs) Yes. And that's okay. So that's our goal. Folks, when you listen here, that's our goal is to bridge that research to practice and practice to research gap. That's kind of like what we do with every topic, every episode, like how do we, yes. Okay, we've run so far over. <laughs> that happens all the time, Michelle. I know, <laughs> but like, you. I love this, but like, I love, love, love this. And you're like, you barely touched the surface. Yes. And so like, we're coming back and doing this again. So we're going to do- Not because again. we need to re-record this episode, but because we're going to- But just doing another episode. And we didn't even get to- So in the one that the universe ate, Allison gave us this amazing resource that one of her students had prepared. Can you talk like ever so briefly about that? Yeah. So my undergraduate student who is now a graduate student, Alicia, Alicia Parsons, and I did tell her I gave it to you and she was so excited about it. She was our undergrad chair for education. And Alicia is incredibly committed to supporting AAC access for people who come from lower SES. So she's incredibly interesting. Alicia, she wrote an amazing blog post for ASHA about being an autistic undergraduate who's pursuing a career in speech language pathology. Now she's our graduate student and she is just killing it. And she's amazing. And she put together 
this incredible research poster that really looked at what are the myths around AAC and then what can you tell parents? And I'm actually, I had put it back on my desktop because I was hoping we would get to this again. And one of the things that she talks about in there is this, one of the common myths that she talks about is this idea that AAC is a last resort in speech-language pathology. And we know it shouldn't be a last resort, right? We know, and it's so exciting to hear, Erin, that you and Michelle are getting AAC in there right away because it's not a last resort. It's like another tool to support language development. And so it's great if more people will be getting it in there for early intervention. Another myth is that AAC is only for non-speaking people. Once again, AAC is good even if you're someone who does communicate verbally. It's that other modality, so that way you have access to both. And then this idea that there's cognitive prerequisites. So I sent Michelle the poster and the fact sheet that Alicia had put together. And she has a common miss, then she has a reality. And because she's amazing, she has a QR code that then has all the resources. And I was like, oh, you can do a lot of stuff with technology I don't know how to do. Like QR codes, I feel like I'm only just figuring them out now. So I did send that to Michelle who said she would put it out. So if you ever need to educate people about AAC, this has all of that information and it has the research to back everything up. And then I would also encourage everyone to read Alicia's blog post about her experiences as an autistic undergraduate in speech language pathology, because it's really interesting and enlightening. Yep. And that is Alicia okay. right there. She's amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Got it. Yep. Amazing. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to post and hyperlink her article. Oh, perfect. Yes. And I'm also, folks, check out the First Bite Instagram account because I'm going to hyperlink the article within our link tree and the resource there. So I'll put all of that up later today. She radiates kindness. She's beautiful, but like it's just like it exudes from her being. We were talking about Asha this year, and I hopefully she'll be putting in a project for Asha next year. I'm not sure if she's going to do a capstone with us or a thesis. Either way, she'll do something amazing because she always does. So we were talking, and, and I'll, I already said I really want to be her mentor be, or her advisor, regardless if she does a capstone <laughs> or a thesis. Because I just really, she's been working with me since she was an undergrad, and I really we have a, a wonderful working relationship. And so I'm hopeful that, and she and I talked about that she'll put in for Asha for next year. And so she'll get to go and do everything. But she, yeah, Michelle and I were talking about this last time. And Erin, this is clearly Michelle's experience with you. We, working with students is the greatest thing in the world. Like everyone comes in with the, I feel like I learn way more from my students than they ever learn from me. I work with students who are a million times smarter than I am. And it is so exciting to see people coming in with this enthusiasm and this desire to change the world. And they're not jaded and they're excited and they're coming out from like this fresh perspective. And students are, I mean, they make my job wonderful. I love my students and I love to go on to see all the amazing things that they do. So, yes. And folks, that's why in the clinical world, we take and serve as clinical supervisors. Yep. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. We get over. Okay. So folks, it's several months away, but in November, come see Dr. Allison Beans' amazing contributions and leadership as she's co-led the autistic Autistic populations for ASHA 2023 in Boston. Yep. And, and I'm going to give a shout out to Rhiannon 
Leister, who is my co-chair, who is absolutely phenomenal. So also check out all the great work that Rhiannon is doing too. She's incredible. Yes. And then we will hit us up on First Bite Podcast to get the links to all of the resources that she highlighted today. First Bite Podcast on Instagram. I think it just says First Bite Podcast. I should probably know my own Instagram handle, but like... That's complicated. And then, you know, we appreciate it when you hit us up with five stars or a joyful review on Apple Podcast. And those are all the shameless plugs that I still feel nervous and awkward as I cover my hands when I go to do them. So Aaron, final thoughts? Oh, I wasn't prepared for that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I love how you just looked at me like, oh, shit. (laughs) Okay. Well, Everybody, thank you. Allison, thank you so much. And I cannot wait to have Morgan on and have you back. Yeah. Thank you both so much, Erin. It was really, really fun to meet you. Michelle was always fun talking. And I feel like you and I could talk for like eons together and never run out of conversation. So yeah, yeah, as always, it was wonderful. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson. The All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention.
my financial disclosures. All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Bye.